Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with uh, Gene Feldkamp and Dan Deephouse. We're at their home in Dundee. It's uh, June 5th, 2020. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us today, for hosting us here. Thank you. Uh, first question, most important question, why wine? Why wine? Um, we love wine. And we especially love bubbles. Um, I think, you know, we got into it probably the, the traditional way for new winemakers. We just, we drank a lot of wine. We got really interested in it, kind of obsessed with bubbles in particular. We started traveling and visiting winemakers when we traveled and just kind of, you know, learning and reading and talking to people and really took a deep dive with it. Yeah, it just starts with unadulterated love for, for sparkling wine. And then it's a slippery slope. <laughs> <laughs> Start making it in your garage, and then you've like carved out a corner in a friend's winery, and next thing you know, you're moving to Oregon. <laughs> well, we'll get into all that. I'm, I'm curious <laughs> about the first step, though. I'm curious about the going from loving wine to wanting to make wine. What's what what per, what prompted the leap there? You know, at some point, you start thinking about what you want to do with the rest of your life. <laughs> and what can you do for the next 50 years and um, you know I think this seems like a, a project that will take at least 50 years and um, you know you really need to like put time into it and love it to get it right so I think that that's kind of where it started. I think some of it too was kind of stumbling into uh, the Oregon community a little bit like Gene grew up here and so we would travel out here from where we were living in California at the time, like travel out here a lot, taste the wines. You know, we had kind of like just experimented with sparkling wine in the, in the garage or whatnot. And so I had kind of some experience and just tasting what was going on out here. There was a lot of interesting stuff. And it's like, oh, we could, you know, there, there's actually a lot of potential for American sparkling beyond kind of, you know, what what we had encountered up to that point so uh yeah i mean when we started thinking about where to go and do this project and really focus on sparkling you know it's this area the willamette valley is is already growing all of the classic sparkling grapes it has a lot of the same sort of climate profiles and microclimates and things that you would want for sparkling wine um and i think you know, once we started putting those pieces together and realizing that a lot of the, the raw material was here and like a lot of really interesting soil types and really, you know, great growers focused on sustainable farming and, you know, it, a lot of the things started falling into place. Um, but then when it really sort of clicked was when we met Andrew Davis. Yeah, they're like, okay, this is really feasible. We could, we could do this. There's a lot of opportunity to explore here that hasn't been done yet. and. Yeah, maybe we should go for it. Okay, I'm going to come back to that in just a second, but before we get to that, I'm curious what you were each doing or both doing before wine. What were, you were in California, how did, how did you meet, and what were you, what was kind of life before wine? Yeah, um, I lived in San Francisco for 15 years before moving back here. Um, like Dan said, I'm from Beaverton originally, 
and I went to school in Los Angeles and then was in San Francisco um, in the software industry, like everybody in San Francisco. Um, so I ran marketing programs for some large companies and some startups. Um, I actually had a couple of clothing lines along the way. I, I did a bunch of different things. And I, I was also working for a software company. I, I was doing software development and um, product design type work. And I met Gene because I was visiting San Francisco a lot from where I was living in Michigan. So uh, we actually met at a bar. She was drinking whiskey <laughs> alone. And I don't remember what you were drinking. <laughs> I wasn't drinking anything because the bartender went. Oh, that's right. Me, oh my gosh. But yeah. we ended up drinking several <laughs> bottles of champagne, and yeah. So we got our relationship uh, off on the right start there <laughs> with bubbles. That was about twelve years ago. Yeah. And I know we, we, when we were doing, looking into your kind of your past, we we learned about the hearsay supper club. So tell us a little bit about about that. <laughs> and about wow. Food, food and about the food and wine aspect. The things I didn't expect to talk about today. <laughs> oh, hold on. I, I, so after we met, we didn't actually start dating for like three years. You want this on our permanent record? Okay, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> but I was like, how can I get Jean to spend more time with me? And I had gone to this amazing supper club out in Paris, and I was like. Jean, we both love cooking, like we both have a passion for food and for wine and cocktails and, and whatnot. So I was like, let's start a supper club, of course. That is, yeah, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so it works and now we're married. Direct result. Yeah. <laughs> In my mind. Nope. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned you're from Oregon originally. Mm -hmm. um, did you have any kind of impression of the Oregon wine industry before you left? Um, my parents drank wine, and they're they're very into food, and always cooked you know food from around the world. And food's been really important in my family, but I don't think that they were like particularly knowledgeable about wine at that time. Um, I think it it. I was aware of it being sort of an important counterpoint to food, um, but I wasn't, you know, raised with wine knowledge necessarily. Yeah, I, I definitely was not brought up in a in a wine world. Um, I started going to this bar in Michigan that uh, my now you know, friend was was running at the time, and you know, exploring all sorts of different wines that, that they had there. And, you know, I think this is the days when Terry Teese, um, who is a, a big importer, was bringing it, starting to bring in a lot of different grower champagnes. And so got introduced to those and got really interested in that through, through him and his bar. And that kind of set me off on the path of like, this is, this is really interesting. Like, there's so much going on in, in these wines. It's a long way from your first glass of wine. Yeah. <laughs> Which was at an olive garden. <laughs> it's okay. It's a safe space. We can talk we can talk about olive garden wine here. I did not like Pinot Grigio at the time. <laughs> I can understand. Yeah. Uh, so tell me you, you mentioned um, kind of Oregon as an interesting spot and then meeting Andrew. So tell me about the, the steps there in, in between we kind of making a little bit of sparkling wine in our garage to like we're going to start a wine brand in Oregon. Tell me about the, the steps that get you here and get you starting your brand. I think, I mean, how did you, you just called him Yeah. Uh, and asked him to meet for coffee and we met him for coffee and talked about what he was doing and it was just sort of a light bulb moment like this is the missing piece that enables us to actually produce sparkling wine because the, the equipment 
the disgorging equipment is so expensive. And so to be able to, you know, share it with other wineries and use it kind of as a service was, was a real light bulb. There's a lot of research that went on, like, you know, okay, we're interested in making sparkling wine, but is there, is this something that we can actually make a living off from, things like that. So we did a lot of research, putting together a business plan and, and trying to figure out, okay, d does this pencil out? And then there was a lot of research around where to buy grapes. Um, you know, as we, as we talked about a minute ago, one of the great things about Oregon is all the right things are planted. And so we felt there was a real opportunity to kind of explore through that, not necessarily to own our own vineyard, but to say, okay, how do all of these different sites translate into sparkling wine here in Oregon? What makes a great sparkling wine? And you know, just just explore that direction. And, and you know, we know that people love bubbles. We know that bubbles is like the fastest growing wine market. So, you know, just kind of made sense to go after. Tell me about the actual like logistics of starting a brand, uh, pick, picking a name, choosing a label, finding grape sites, learning you know all of the things you have to learn. Tell me about the kind of the, the step by step of, of starting Corollary and choosing Corollary as your name. Well, um, we I mean I'd say we chose sites before we got to the name Corollary, so maybe we should talk about that first. Yeah, site choosing was just like making a list of everything, calling everybody up, um, going around and. Uh, with Jessica Cortell through the valley and it's like here are some sites or like you should talk to these guys that's how we found Catchall she she was taking us to see her vineyard at her house and she pulled over before we got there and she pointed up the hill and she said hey my neighbors up there have some grapes that you might want to get some good grapes yeah and so we make a rosé from them now and, and looking for sites where like still wine doesn't really ripen all the time right like we work with Namaste Vineyard they they harvest for still wine sometimes in November over there. So, okay, we can harvest in the beginning of October, and that wine, I think, just has so much verve to it because of, you know, it's got that right mix of climate and um, clone and soils. Um, so, so there's a lot of exploration that's been a lot of fun and, like, just tasting a lot of different wines. Mm -hmm. uh, we tried to really sort of craft a portfolio of vineyards where we had different um, different soil types and different sub-AVAs and we wanted to be able to sort of showcase a portfolio of sparkling wine and do different styles of sparkling and show people that you know it's really food friendly or it's you know there's a great wine with oysters and here's a great wine with lamb um, so I think you know having the the variety of sites within the Willamette Valley has been really great for us. So one of the great things about launching a sparkling wine brand is because it takes so long, you have three years to work out all the kinks like the labels and the name. So we had chosen one name originally. We originally Perseid Wines mm -hmm. uh, and discovered that there was a vineyard that had trademarked that. It was um, part of uh, the name of a Cabernet that they produced down in Napa. So. so we had to change the name. Uh, I think you came up with this one, Choosing right? a wine name is a terrible process because everything's taken or stupid. And so we kind of went through with those filters. Um, 
and so you know from our list of ideas it got whittled down to a very short list of contenders um, corollary we liked because it has this idea of the relationship between the site and the finished product and you know since we're really trying to explore the you know the dotted line between what you start with and what comes out in the bottle um, it seemed to make a lot of sense yeah and then in terms of the you know the design and the label um, the the triangle is sort of a reference to geometric proofs um, the idea being that like if you know one thing to be true you know this other thing you can sort of extrapolate and um, so the the triangle is kind of the simplified version of that I like it. You had a lot of time to think about it. You really put a lot of thought into it too. That's, that's we did. interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I know it's it, uh, you, you talked about the, the long process, the complicated process, and also expensive process if you have to buy your own equipment of making sparkling wine. So was there ever a time when you thought let's do some still wine first and get into sparkling later, or was this always going to be like sparkling from the start? We talked about it as we were going through our business planning, um, but what we decided was that it really our differentiators one of our differentiators is that we're all sparkling and so we really wanted to focus on just this one thing that we love yeah let's, let's do this one thing and just nail it and there's not enough of this one thing around so it's, there's there's plenty of awesome people making still wine <laughs> yeah i don't think we felt like we had anything to contribute to the oregon pinot conversation so you uh, you clearly you, you chose your your brand to start, and it was supposed to, you're supposed to kind of launch this spring, and of course that got postponed uh, or at least delayed, uh, pushed away by the by the pandemic we're dealing with now. So tell me about how that has adjusted what you're doing, and, and sort of how you've kind of rolled with that the last few months, and what your kind of future looks like uh, from that perspective. So. The original plan was that we were going to have a launch party at Ambonay in Portland on March 25th. And, um, you know, a few weeks ahead of that, it became clear that that probably wasn't going to be possible. Um, so we, I think we made the call, you know, the second week of March, first or second week of March, um, and just decided to postpone and kind of see how things went. Um, I don't know when you know we're rescheduling for we're kind of still in that wait and see moment um we have made the wines available so they're for sale on our website and kind of did a, a soft launch and then we'll kind of relaunch again later yeah. this year early next year and you know, the response has been really good from you know the people that we know but uh, we had started doing industry tastings um in advance yeah. And we'd gotten, you know, great response from psalms and restaurants and um, wine shops. And it, we were just early enough in that process that they kind of right when they would have been making buying decisions, um, everybody pulled back and just sort of focused on the inventory that they had. So we'll get there eventually. Luckily, we made a product that gets better with age. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so. I, I think all, all the response has been super positive. We're still like gung ho about the brand and about the concept. And, you know, as Jean said, like, you know, we only had disgorged part of our release anyway. So our plan was over time to extend 
how much time on the leaves each wine had. So now we get to accelerate that. <laughs> so that, it's not all bad, that I guess. So I'm, I'm curious about, uh, you talked about like response. Uh, are people outside of the industry finding you? And if they are, what are you doing about like new customers? Are you, are you pouring for them? Are you sh selling wine to people you, yeah. what's, the, what's the process of like new people who you don't know who wanna buy your wine? Um, at this point, it's kind of, it's word of mouth. Um, a lot of friends and family word of mouth right now and you know, industry word of mouth. Um, we had done a few tastings, private tastings for people ahead of lockdown. Um, we're not doing any in-person tastings right now. We're gonna still kind of wait and see. Um, since we don't have a tasting room lo location, we have to be a little more strategic about how we do those because we need the single day event permits and it's a little more complicated. Um, I, I mean, I don't know what else to say about that. We're yeah, we're doing some strategic partnership. Or not, I don't know partnership, but like we're so we're, we're doing a uh, it's yeah it's a partnership right now. There's a um, a music performance ensemble in Portland called Third Angle New Music. Um, I'm actually on their board, and so we're doing a a thing right now where through the end of June we're donating 20% of all sales to them um, to support the organization. So, you know, things like that um, where, you know, we can expand the, the sort of base of people who know about us a little bit and also do something good at the same time. It feels like kind of the right approach right now. Um, you, talk, you talked a little bit earlier about um, kind of Oregon, the Wyoming Valley being perfect for sparkling. Uh, tell me uh, a bit more in depth uh, what the terroir of the Wyoming Valley is when it comes to sparkling. Obviously sparkling has been here a long time, but only recently in much quantity. So tell me about what you find uh, that's exciting for sparkling wine here. Uh, well, I think it starts with the climate being perfect, right? We have as many degree growing days in a lot of sites as, as uh, they do in Champagne, right? So you've got like a perfect match uh, of climate and that's really thanks to all the Van Duzer winds coming in to the valley and you know being able to have some high elevation sites where which are ones that we typically work with um, and you know I think the interesting thing about the Willamette Valley terroir is it, it's it's got that acid and it's got that fruit and you can bring those two things together and you know we've do different explorations with that like we you know with rosés you know for example we're doing like a carbonically fermented rosé and it's like this explosion of fruit flavors which is is super fun but it, it's it's elegant at the same time because uh, it because it's got that acid backbone um I, I mean i think one of the other things that we have going for us here is the there's such an enormous variety of soil types and um, so, you know, we, we can make wine from volcanic sites and from some sites that have, you know, tons of marine fossils in them and really kind of play with, play with all the different soil diversity that we have here. Yeah, what, what is Oregon or, you know, Willamette Valley sparkling? Like, you know, it's, it's early days, right? You know, we're, 
that's that's part of the 50-year project, right? It's like <laughs> let's let's explore what does what does Oregon Pinot Blanc taste like in the glass? What does it taste like to make a Pinot Gris? Or what is it? What is the right way to blend all of these different components and and flavors that we have going on? So that that's really the fun of the project. <laughs> it has. I mean, we've produced three vintages now, and so we're starting to see some of the the through lines, I guess, from each site. Um, so Namaste Vineyard, we always get this really great kind of baking spice, like pineapple, apple, like very high malic acid, but also this really cool spice note. Um, you know, we get these beautiful kind of like raspberry tones from Catrell Vineyard. Um, so we're starting to see the, the, the aromas and the flavors that are really making each site special. You mentioned looking especially for high elevation sites. Tell me about that. Well, you know, there's so many different microclimates inside the valley, right? And I think it's every 300 feet you go up in the valley, you lose a degree of temperature, right? So the cooler sites ripen more slowly, which is what we want for sparkling wine. So if you don't know much about sparkling wine, you, you pick it at a lower sugar level uh, to keep the acidity and because later on you add more sugar into the process to to ferment again and add the bubbles and so you need a little bit more delicate high acid driven wine to do that and so we can kind of pick out the sites like at the very top of Eola Amity or the very top of the Dundee Hills uh, or in right in the middle of the Van Duzer corridor these are super cool sites and really just perfect for sparkling In addition to that, you're also looking, f it seems like you're looking for sustainable vineyard practices. Tell me what what sustainability means to you when you're looking for people selling sustainable grapes and then why you choose to buy from sustainable vineyards. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's a learning process for us too because we're coming from the, you know, another world. Um, but definitely, I you know, looking for people who are looking at the ecosystem of the vineyard and, and how to maintain that ecosystem, not just, um, you know, look at look at the grapes in isolation. Um, I think one thing we have a lot of conviction around is not no use of herbicides uh, and just, you know, that can really just kill so many things in the soil and it, it's, it's dangerous, um, you know, and such a complex topic. <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the the vineyards that we work with are, I think, all, all almost all, um, you know, biodynamic or live certified or organic. Um, we're not dogmatic about certifications, and but I mean, but yeah, we want we want to be working with growers who are thinking about the soil and the you know the whole ecosystem as part of what they're taking care of not just producing a crop yeah like mo Montazi is the classic example of that right with the cows and the and the chickens and um, everything running around the vineyard and he's very thoughtful about all that so you know we love that and we want to support those growers so you've, you touched on this a couple of times i think in bits and pieces but i'm curious if how would you describe your winemaking philosophy? I, I mean, I would say that the philosophy is generally 
minimal intervention. We are not trying to impose our style, put our, you know, winemaker stamp on it. We're trying to, I, I would say the place where we exert the most influence is in choosing the vineyards that we're working with. Um, and then when we get the fruit from those vineyards, we're really just trying to shape them gently into the best version of what they can be. Right. For me, and this kind of goes back to the corollary name, like understanding the relationship between everything you do at every step of the process is, is super important. Um, and really being thoughtful about, we're gonna do it like this to help, you know, achieve this. And then I, it's typically to highlight what, what's going on in that, in that vineyard, right? Um, trying to think of an example. Yeah. But, it, you know, for me, it's a, it's a craft at the end of the day, right? Like, it's taking what's there naturally, what people have planted, what we do in, in, the, in the winery, and being extremely thoughtful about every step in the process. Uh, not just saying, hey, uh, we're just going to dump it all in the tank and, like, throw some sulfur in it because, like, that's what we do, right? Well, does it really need that? Um, you know what's the right way to you know store the wine well it's uh, before secondary fermentation right so extending the leaves contact to build richness in the wines and, and thinking about how that can add another layer of dimension I'm curious about uh, I'm not terribly familiar with the sparkling winemaking process but I'm sort of curious about building the confidence in yourselves to be able to make those kinds of decisions. Uh, you talk about minimal intervention, but that obviously means you have to make some decisions along the way. So at what point do you feel comfortable saying, I like how this is, I'm, I, I'm okay leaving this be, versus I need to do something about this or it's not gonna turn out how I want it? <laughs> so this is where we start talking about how great the Oregon wine industry is. Yeah, um, for sure. We, we've gotten so much help along the way. I mean, we're, we ask questions. Um, so we've gotten a lot of great advice and input and um, we work out of Winters Hill. And so Andrew Davis is making the Lytle Barnett wine up there. Bobby Rowett is making Mellon Meyer up there. Winters Hill makes its own sparkling wine. Um, so we, you know, we have this sort of mini club of, of sparkling makers working alongside each other, which has been amazing. Um, we benefit from their, their wisdom and ideas. Um, yeah, and I mean, we just keep doing research and trying things and, um, you know, we, we, we do experiments, small experiments to see, I guess that's our Silicon Valley selves coming out. <laughs> right, like um, this year we did a barrel of Pinot Gris, right? And like, let, let's understand what that brings to the table. You know, not many people have, have done that, maybe two or three in, in the valley. And so there, there's not a lot you can go taste. Um, you know, let's let's look at what are the different types of Pinot clones planted around the valley and how do they contribute different flavors for the different sites they're at. And we so, usually do some experiments with, you know, commercial yeast versus native yeast. Um, yeah, so at the end of the day, we've got like 10 different individual lots. I mean, and 30 different barrels, so like uh, we're, you, it's, it's all about how do we learn very rapidly and and refine what we're doing. 
but yeah, the help from people has just been uh, amazing, and yeah. we wouldn't be where we are without you know Andrew and uh, Russell and Jason at Winters Hill, and you know all the tastings winemakers have let us, you know let us come and, and taste their barrels, right? Like, okay, go up to Walter Scott tasting. Holy crap, what is this Chardonnay from this vineyard? I need to go learn more about this vineyard. Okay, now calling up the guy and they're like, how do we get grapes? And it's like, it's, it's just a big learning experience. A big candy store. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna go a little philosophical on you here. Um, what is wine's purpose in society? Oh my gosh. Oh. <laughs> I wish you'd sent these questions out. <laughs> I could have like thought about that one. Um, wine's purpose in society. Oh boy. Uh. Um, I mean, so when I think about hearsay supper club, um, the the purpose of that was to bring people to the same table who probably wouldn't have landed there otherwise. And um, I think you know wine has a lot to do with that idea. Um, it's, a, it's a thing that brings people together and makes them happy to talk to each other and um, I think society could use as much of that as it can get right now. For sure. I think it's also, I think it's also a really um, sort of important expression of a place you know, in the same way that, that food is. Um, there's a lot of history to wine and the way that it's made, and then also, you know, history and the way that it's farmed, and obviously the place where it's grown um, creates a very specific profile. And so it's a really, it's the way of, it's a way of telling a story about a place, which I think is really important. Nothing to add. That's a, that's a very good answer on, on the spot, I'm impressed. Um, what would you want someone to get out of a bottle of your wine? What would the ultimate reaction to a, drinking some of your wine be? I want them to get up and dance and then order another bottle. <laughs> yeah, we, want, we want people to enjoy it. We wanted to bring them and their friends together, yeah. uh, new people together. Um, we want it to trigger thinking about wine what is this how did it get to be like this what what happens if you do things differently but like i think it has to to start with that kind of visceral enjoyment one of the best things about the i guess the covid situation right now is you know we've been doing delivery to people which isn't something we would have done otherwise but it's the best when you ring somebody's doorbell and you show up and you hand them some wine and they're just like so happy <laughs> that sort of happy reaction is really great because people don't react to software that way <laughs> <laughs> so as you look uh, ahead for for yourselves uh what do you see in the future for for corollary wines and and also on a larger level what do you see in the future for oregon sparkling wine Oh man. We have big plans for Oregon Sparkling <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's so many things we want to do. We want to, I think for us it does start with Oregon Sparkling Wine and Willamette Valley Sparkling Wine, like really believe in the rising tide lifts all boats. Like we want to establish 
this place as a premier world-class region for sparkling wine. Like, we think it has a lot to say, and just like people have done with Pinot, and people are, are really, I think, doing now with Chardonnay, like, we see that same opportunity here for, for bubbles. So that's kind of like the big vision. Uh, and then, you know, there's lots of other things that, you know, we want to do in our project, like work with reserve wines and, and other sites and, mm -hmm. you know, blend more and age things longer and, <laughs> you know. 50-year project. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Do you, do you have, is there an end goal? Is there a size in mind or is there a, once we reach this point, we've done what we want to do or is it really just unfolding at, at, as, you, as you do more, you see more you want to do? I think we'll be in a better spot to answer that in like five, ten years. Um, right now, you know, the next big stage is launching and getting ourselves off the ground and known a little bit. But I don't think we want to be a huge winery. I mean, I think, you know, we want to, to be making the wines ourselves, um, to be doing these experiments and working directly with the growers and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but... I, I think we like doing everything hands-on, and so mm -hmm. we're not trying to be, a, you know, 100,000 cases a year. We're, we're happy at 1,000. <laughs> um, obviously, you're, you're still fairly new to the Oregon wine industry, but I, I'm curious, you, you talked already about the, the welcome you got, and actually that was the question that I had forgotten a little bit earlier. Was I'm, I was curious if that's if it surprised you, if if your if your entree into the Oregon wine industry surprised you in any way. I mean, the Oregon wine industry feels like a big warm hug. People have been really nice. Yeah. Um, definitely, definitely more sport than I think we counted on. Yeah. Um, Everybody's very um, open about sharing knowledge here, which is amazing um and i think there's this real sense like you said that a rising tide lifts all boats um i think you know when growers in the 70s got together to sort of create this pinot identity for the willamette valley that was amazing and you know doing it again with chardonnay it it really that was a light bulb for us too i think that you know the the industry as a whole in a region is stronger if people work together that way um, and the sparkling producers that are that are making sparkling here now are doing the same thing there are about 30 sparkling producers that get together every february for a base wine tasting and so we've done that for the past couple of years um, you know you blind taste sparkling base wine all day which is rough but um you know, everybody tastes blind and, and discusses together, and that's really helpful. And just you know, the spirit of that is really nice. For sure. What do you see as you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry in general, and uh, and has that changed uh, since we've since the last few months in the pand in the pandemic here? Oh man, uh, I don't know. If, I I don't necessarily feel like I'm an expert on the industry in general. Uh, but it's I, I mean, I'd say that Oregon's sort of profile is is rising in the wine world at large. Like people people know Oregon more every year than they used to, um, and specifically, you know, the Willamette Valley is becoming more known. I think um, 
we need that to continue. I mean, to, to really scale, you need people coming from outside the region to get to know your wines and sort of spread your name. Um, I think there's, there's a break <laughs> in that right now with COVID. Um, I think it might be a year or two before we see the same kind of levels of tourist traffic. Um, but I don't know, we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Just looking at the crowds at Red Hills down the street here for the last couple weeks, it, I mean, people are definitely coming out here and going to wineries again. So uh, I don't know if those are all local people or not, but. Yeah. Um, Cabin fever is an impressive motivator. Yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> Clearly people want to come here, so. All right, well, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I didn't come prepared with questions. So. No, I think we're good. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. Appreciate thank you me. taking the time yeah, and telling you. us your story and uh, it's sharing your wine, which is delicious, by the way. Thank you. Uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.